come before you this evening, we do look into your word to be an agent of sanctification upon our hearts and our minds, shaping the direction of our lives from this day forward, Lord. We pray that you would help us to see what we need to see to be encouraged to grow in the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, where we're going to look at Psalm 87. It's a short psalm. But it's, a, it's an encouraging psalm. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Salah. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there, Silah. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? I suppose that I'm in familiar territory if I invited you to think back of the time when you were in middle school, you were early teenage years, and just how big of a struggle that was. How difficult it was to go to school, and you never knew from one day to the next if you would be in favor or out of favor with this teacher or that teacher or with this group of people or that group of people. It just was a hard time in life. Uh, one thing that got me through each of those difficult school years was to look forward to the time my family would make its way from Oklahoma up to the great state of Michigan where there was a little cabin on a lake that we would go and spend two weeks every summer. And it was a, it was a great sense of relief. I think about why that was and probably have similar experience. It was a time when as a child you get to go and explore. It was a time of wonder and mystery, as if there was some magic about that place. There was no limitations. There was just this, this freedom and joy to be experienced. No pressures, no anxieties, no peer pressure, none of those things that were left back at home. You just got to be free. And so it was one of those things that would cause me uh, to get through the difficult times. A few years ago, uh, I took a sabbatical. My, the church gave me a four-month sabbatical away from here, and it was because I had been really struggling. I'd been growing weary and weary after weary. You know that experience. I'd been here for 15 years, and I'd not taken a break, and I think the weight of ministry was just heavy, not to mention the struggles of my own family and what was going on in there with regard to my, my, all my kids growing up, getting older, some of them getting out of college, some of them in college, some of them dealing with the same struggles that we dealt with in high school, not to mention the failing health of my father and my father-in-law. And all of these things were just compounding, adding stress upon the family, with, on top of you know, bearing the weight of knowing that people in the congregation are struggling in some ways too. And as I thought about, what should I do for this sabbatical? Should I go away to some wondrous place in Europe and study under some great teacher and that? And, and uh, instead, I just thought, I need to go back to the little cabin on the lake. That's where the magic and the wonder and the mystery 
is. So I went back there and got to spend three of those four months in that place, and indeed was very refreshing for the soul. And you think, why do I tell that story? I think that even as Brett mentioned earlier, we do feel the weariness of ministry, the weight of ministry, and the struggle that our own people are going through in the world. I mean, these last few years especially, you know, with the onset of the pandemic and the strain and the fears and the pressures and that everyone was feeling, the changing of schedules, uh, weighed heavy. And while it weighed heavy on us personally, we could also see it weighing heavy on all our people, you know, upsetting the schedule of worship to everything else that we were doing. And again, you think, what gets you through all these difficult times? And it's, I think it's the thought that there exists some place that's very real and very magical and full of wonder and full of mystery and full of joy and full of freedom. And it does exist, and it has a name, and it's called Zion. The psalmist writes, glorious things of you are spoken, O Zion. I was thinking of the passage in Romans when Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And it's this Zion. You think about the psalmist writing this to a group, to a people, a nation that has struggled under one enemy after another at various times. Some kings were good and they prospered, and many kings were evil and they didn't prosper. And enemies pressured them on every side, constantly threatening them, carrying them off into exile eventually. And you think, what were the words that gave them hope? Is to remember that there is a there is a place called Zion, and it's real, and exists, and of it, glorious things are spoken. And I wanted just to work my way briefly through this psalm to talk about, well, what are some of those glorious things that make Zion such a thing that we can focus on to get us through the struggles and the weight of everyday difficulties of life? And there's, there's, there's three things I want to draw out. The first is in Zion, we find that's where the love of God exists. If you look at the first couple of verses, he says, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Now, that's an interesting statement if you think about it. And you think the Lord has set his, his love upon people, and certainly that's true, all the way back to the calling of Abraham when he was over in Ur of, of the Chaldeans, telling him, go to a place that I will show you. And, of course, he carries him off to Canaan and he wanders the land, eventually growing his family, facing a famine, his family goes to Egypt, is rescued by their brother Joseph. You know the story. A pharaoh rises up who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't remember him, enslaves their people because he feels threatened by their, their quick multiplication. And they're oppressed for 400 years. They cry out to deliver. God raises up Moses, comes and tells Pharaoh to release my people. Pharaoh, of course, pushes back. And so we see the mighty plagues brought about by the Lord to put on display his great power. And all of this is because... He has set his love on a people, to Abraham and his descendants. I will be your God and you will be my people. And as he leads them out of Egypt, he carries them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he meets them in this great cloud and this great fire and the great thunder and gives them the instructions of how are you to live with me in your camp. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the instructions to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle representing, by the way, the reality that God was going to dwell in the midst of his people. 
And he carries them all through the, the wilderness for those 40 years until he finally brings them to the edge of the promised land and finally into the promised land where they push out the nations that existed whose sin was full by that time. But still, they didn't reside in Zion, not just yet. It was as King David rose to power, and he went and conquered these people called the Jebusites who occupied this mount, this little mount in Zion. I was there this past spring with my wife and mother-in-law. We got to see Jerusalem, pretty fascinating place to see, but it's certainly not the tallest mountain you'll ever run into. It's, it's a pretty area, but it's not the prettiest area that you'll ever see. It's not even the prettiest or the tallest in perhaps Israel. And yet God has said, this is where, this is the place that I love. And you think, well, why is it? What is it about Zion that is the place where God loves? And I would say this, Zion is the destination of all of that work God was doing, putting on display his love. And finally, when they arrive to Zion, not only, David was one who conquered the, the enemies, but when his son took the throne, Solomon, Finally, it was a place where they had peace and prosperity and wisdom and justice. It was the destination. It's where they got to experience an aspect of this God that they knew loved them in a different way. And I, I think about that little cabin on the lake and what made it so amazing to me as a kid growing up. And, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about my own father. And I, my father uh, loved me, and I knew he loved me. But during the school year, during the regular year, he worked hard. And while I got to see him, you know, he comes to my games or my baseball games or my soccer games or my football games or whatever sport I was playing at the time. But overall, when I would engage with him or I'd run an errand with him, you know, he was filled with the worries of his own life. He was filled with the busyness of doing and doing and doing to make a home for us, to provide for us, to be able to pay for the things that we needed to go to college or wherever it is we were going to do. And so I got to experience his love in his, by way of provision. But when we got to the lake, my dad became that little boy again. And it was as though all of his anxieties and his cares, because he had grown up there too. This is a place that's been in the family for multiple generations. And I got to see him laughing from his belly like I never got to see him in the rest of the year. I got to see him, what it looks like to be, have a father who's just happy with life. And it's contagious. It spills over. It's like, I knew my father loved me all the rest of those months during the year, but it was that place that I felt it. It's that place where his presence was real. And I think that's what he's saying here about Zion. Yes, we know logically God has done so much work for you to rescue you from all the various kinds of oppression that you face, the struggles that you face, the enslavements and addictions that we face. And he's ultimately paid the great price by sending Jesus' son to die on the cross so that we might not have the weight of our own sin and guilt upon us, against us. So he's done all of these things, and we preach these things. We communicate, this is how we know that God loves us, because he's worked hard on behalf of those who wait for him, as Isaiah says. But it's when we get to Zion that we will know more than just a logical explanation of his love. It's there that we will feel it, that we will be in its presence, because that's where God is. Now, we have a taste of that on earth, and it's when we gather together to worship. 
There is a taste of Zion when we gather together because God is here. The Spirit is in the dwelling of His people. When we come to the communion table, there is a sense in which God is present in a way that He's not present throughout the rest of the week. It's not to say that He's not there. It's not to say He's not working for you. But it's there that we get a small taste of what, of what Zion is meant to be. And it overflows. Which brings me to the next point. What else is glorious about it? Well, if you notice what he says down in verse 6, towards the end, he says, The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Salah. That's an interesting reference the Lord records and registers as people. We knew this to be the reason why we find all those genealogies in the Bible. It's a record of who is to be an inheritor of the promises of God. Who's on the rolls? The New Testament has an equivalent. As we go back to the, we turn all the way to the back of the book, in the book of Revelation, we find God opening the book of life. Here's the record. This one was born here. This is how you get here. Not because you've done something great that God is choosing to reward you. It's because your name is written in the register. It was written there before the very foundation of the world. And it's interesting about the way the psalmist describes it. He says, as a people who's registered in the book... This is how they're described. This one was born there. You think about that, that expression. What does that mean? Because a lot of those people weren't literally born in Zion. You know, Mount Zion is a very small place. I doubt most Israelites were born on Mount Zion. So what's the meaning here? I think what he's trying to tell us is, is that this is where you were born to be. You may have been physically born somewhere else, but this is your home. This is your family. You know, I think about our little cabin up on, on the, the lake up there in Michigan, you know, being in the family for, for over 100 years now. And of all the places that I've lived, you know, I grew up in, in Oklahoma. As soon as I graduated, you know, I, I moved away to Wyoming. I've lived in Tennessee. I've lived in Florida. I've lived in Ohio, and now I'm in Texas. And you think, well, where is home? You know, the one place that has never changed through all of those moves is that little cabin on the lake. If there is a place that I would call home on this earth, it would be that place. And you think, this is what he's saying, Zion. Zion is your home. You may live in Texas now or Louisiana or Mississippi or some other state as you're visiting St. Louis, but Zion is your home. This is where you are meant for to be, who you, where you were born to be. And the other thing about up at that lake, when I would go up at the lake as a kid, you know, I struggled like every child does, I'm sure, with my own self-image, who I am, my own value of self-worth and all of those kinds of things. And, but when I would get to the lake, I felt valuable. I finally felt the restraints of all the pressures of everybody putting off me were just gone and I could just be who I wanted to be. And we weren't the only cabin that had generational people living in them. All along our row were other families who also grew up for the past hundred years. So I grew up with their kids. And every summer we'd see each other, and the only place that we ever saw each other is in the context of this little, protected, mysterious, wonderful place. So there wasn't the pressure put on that kids can do at home. And I, I can remember still getting in the car and driving home and thinking to myself, 
Why can't I be the person in Oklahoma that I am when I'm at the lake? The person that you were born to be is revealed in Zion. Yeah, we struggle. We're in the midst of a wilderness. We are sojourners and exiles on this earth. But our citizenship, our home, is in Zion. And we are meant to experience a measure of taste of that in this little place called the church. The small Z, Zion, if you want to think of it that way. As the Lord is at work doing the hard work of sanctifying us, shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom we were born to look like. So we know something about that because we feel the Father's love overflowing into us, forming us to be someone that we were born to be. And then the last thing that we see that makes Zion such a glorious place is that our enemies are there. In verse 4, he says, Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. Rahab is another name for Egypt. Babylon, of course, was one of the greatest enemies. That's the one who carried the northern nation of Judah into captivity, who destroyed Jerusalem. These were the enemies of God's people. And yet, the psalmist has the audacity to say that Philistia, Babylon, Tyre, Cush, Rahab will be there. And not just there. Look what he says. He says, this one was born there. They were born to be there too. Now you think, how did the Israelites get to Zion? They had to go through the wilderness. They had to go through lots of trials and tribulations to get there for God to do a lot of work of sanctifying. Well, I would say the same thing about the enemies. They too are going to have to go through a lot of trials and tribulations to get there. But when they're there, as we see in the final book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we see such a vast variety of people and their own experiences that enriches the city itself. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, they will know, the world will know you're my disciples because of your knowledge about me, because of your doctrinal stances. No, because of your love for one another. And you think about the first century in which Jesus was speaking, and how is that something that would point out that they're my disciples? Because here is something that unites people that would otherwise never mix. You think about the first century church and who was in it. As Paul says in Galatians, you know, there's neither slave nor free. Well, those people didn't really exist in the same social circles. There's neither Greek nor Jew. Again, they didn't mix. Male or female, in different kinds of society, they didn't mix as well. Even within Jesus' own circle, who does he have? He has some zealots. He has some Pharisees. He has a tax collector. You would never get those people in a room together. Not for long, anyway. Because those things formed part of their identity that didn't allow them to mix, and, to mix with other, others, those other groups. But when you look at the church and you see it has tax collectors and Pharisees and zealots, and Greeks, enslaved, and free, you think, what on earth has the power to unite people who would never mix? It's the love of God. This is how they will know that you're my disciples, because you love one another. Because now you have an identity that is more powerful than all the other things that make up who you are. 
This trumps them all. We spent a lot of time on this coming out of the pandemic because we realized, wow, we got a lot of people who have a lot of different perspectives on this. How do we get along? We realized, well, you know what? We don't all have to agree on this stuff because none of us really know all the answers. But we, we do agree on this, that we love each other because we know the Father's love. So we get to that place, this Zion, and we see these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is, an, it is one more expression of the love of God that makes this a glorious place. And they will have perspectives that we never had. And hopefully we will have perspectives that they ever had. As we share them together, we have a grander, bigger picture of the wonder and majesty and glory of this God who loved us. I love the story C.S. Lewis would tell about his little group of writing friends that he would meet with. And when one of them died, he, he talks about how, one of, how there was a part of him that was kind of glad because now he could have more of his friends to himself. He didn't have to share them with as many people. And as time went on, he realized, actually, this one, this friend of them who died brought out an aspect of their, their other friends that only he could bring out. And it was as though when he died, so did his ability to appreciate those aspects of, the, of his other friends. So we get together with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are going to be able to appreciate, I think, our, our Lord in ways that we could never even dreamed. Glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of God. And the church is our little taste of it here on earth to remind us that there is a Zion where we not only know about the love of God that brought us through so many trials to bring us there, but there we feel it. We feel it so wonderfully that it spills over and shapes us into becoming the people that we were born to be, to live alongside other people who are so different than us, who are also born to be there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for Zion and the image and the vision of Zion. And I ask, Lord, as, as we go through the struggles and difficulties that we face every day, and those we don't even know are coming, that you would remind us of Zion, of this wondrous host, this, this, this wondrous hope, this place where your glory is on display, your love is felt. And Lord, as we think about our own churches, help us to remind our people that this is a taste of that, this is a foreshadowing of that, that this is pointing forward to that heavenly city that will one day be revealed. In Jesus' name. Amen.